He was a 17-year-old Wavell Heights high school student when he made his first grade debut. Now, at 20 years of age, and playing for Norths in the front row, he was one of the leaders of his pack and one of the best players in the BRL. He was tough enough to play in the engine room while still a teenager, and yet his skills were that of a halfback or a 5'8". He was big and strong and could stand in tackles and offload to supports. He was also so in control of a game that he could run to the line and place a deft pass to supports hitting a gap. He could kick long or kick short with accuracy, and he could kick goals as well. Although Norths won the wooden spoon, that lack of success had nothing to do with this guy's ability or standard of play. He raced away with the Rothmans medal, winning the coveted prize, being five points clear of his nearest rivals. You're listening to episode 17 of BRL Moments in Time, a podcast celebrating the history of the BRL, and Norths getting the wooden spoon with Daryl Broman winning the Rothmans medal. That was 1966. G'day everybody, welcome to BRL Moments in Time. I'm Chris Leeson together with Dave Teagle tackling the 1976 BRL season. Hey, hey, see what I did there Dave? I was tackling the 1976 season. So how are you going today? <laughs> Looking forward to tackling 76 Chris. Yeah, that's Great cool. work mate. If you were one of my students uh, submitting an English essay, I'd be marking you up for that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm feeling good about that one. Uh, can you give us some context Dave? It surely it wasn't as tumultuous as 75. What was happening though in 1976? Rightio. Well, most of the basics were rising in costs. A postage stamp was still 18 cents. There were also slight rises in basic food costs. A loaf of bread was about 42 cents and a pint of milk was 26 cents. The average salary was still around $8,600 and the average house price in Brisbane was $27,000. Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister and Joe Bjelke-Peterson was the Premier of Queensland. In March, there was an almost collapse of a number of building societies in Queensland and a police inspector hit a girl on the head with a baton during a university protest. Those protests were a common thing in Brisbane during the time. Yeah, Dave, I remember all of those protests in Brisbane at the time. It seemed that there was a significant amount of unrest within a large portion of the Brisbane community regarding J.B. Peterson's government. And as a result, all of those protests were just happening on a fairly regular basis. And police often get themselves into this kind of tricky situation, sometimes I'm sure because of uh, things that people were doing to them and other times because they were throwing the baton, so to speak. Yeah, Chris, uh, my uni uh, life was pretty boring in comparison, I'm afraid. Um, but let's get back to what else was happening in uh, that particular year. The Young Doctors and The Sullivans aired on Channel 9 television. On September the 1st, cigarette and tobacco advertising was banned from our television screens. In November, after a lengthy trial, a serving and retired policeman were acquitted of corruption charges. One of the men would later admit to being guilty during the Fitzgerald inquiry. Ten days after this, the police commissioner resigned, stating that he couldn't do his job under such a high level of government interference. And in footy terms, though, there was upheaval aplenty, with coaches and players moving here, there and everywhere. Yeah, and some of that upheaval was occurring at Valleys. After a run of six straight grand final appearances and four premierships, Valleys slumped in 1975 to be wooden spooners. Henry Holloway decided not to exercise his option to renew his contract, and he went north to Townsville. 
Uh, Valleys engaged a newly retired captain, Marty Scanlon, as their coach in 1976. And there'd been plenty of other player losses as well besides Scanlon, like Russell Hughes, who'd been signed at Penrith. Norm Clark retired. Mick Rathbone went to Redcliffe. John Abbott went to Easts. Jeff Gill to uh, South St. Toowoomba. Uh, Alan Beecham went to Narang on the Gold Coast. And Ross Strodrick was recovering from a knee reconstruction operation. So the team that Valley started the season with would look considerably different to previous seasons. But after a wooden spoon in 75, that might be a good thing. It's interesting to note that at this stage of their development, Valley's also had spiralling financial troubles. So much success, I suppose, brings with it hefty payloads for players and Valley's were starting to show the strain. But they'd picked up a few new players like Mark Svensson and Joel Abbott's younger brother Bob Abbott, among a few others that came in from the country. Yeah, but it wasn't all new just at Valleys though, Chris. Des Morris took on the captain coach reins for Easts and the focus at Langlands Park was to be fitter. Their club president, Jack Atkin, said that players were not getting to positions quickly enough and that the Tigers lost too many games in 75 after leading early. The Tigers also brought in a few new players. Wayne Lindenberg from Toowoomba, Steve Farquhar from Norths, John Abbott from Valleys and Neil Crozaz from Wynnum. Easts lost a few players like Wayne Woods, Alan Shepherd, Wayne Height, and there was uncertainty over the unavailability of John Eels, Terry Creedy and Alan Curry. But Easts had retained and built a strong squad. Now it was up to Des Morris to get the best out of them. Yeah, and uh, the newspapers also went to great lengths to make sure that every team was um, listed before the season so that we could see what was going on. And at Norths, Tommy Bishop had retired uh, from playing and he was just taking on the coaching role. Uh, he would have been saddled with a very young side with much of the experience at Norths retiring or moving to the country at the end of 1975. And their losses included Jeff Wraith, um, their fullback, uh, Vic Podzinas, Eric Lilly, Ralph Michaels, Steve Farquhar and Tommy Bishop in the backs. And in the forwards, Doug Drew, John Sattler, Ern Wanker, Nick Geiger, Peter Kleinhans, Glenn Harrison, Mick Walker and Peter Clark. So there were minimal gains led by Gary Seaton from Winner Manly, so Norths would rely on youngsters like Steve Calder, Daryl Broman, Tony Trent, Bruce Warwick and Wayne Hale, along with reserve graders from last year, Les Salter, Pat Hannon, Ken Fletcher and Gary Dickens. Ron Raper was still at Wests after taking the Panthers to the Premiership in his first year and having the same squad to work with and being a year more experienced than last year. Much was expected over at Pertell Park. Greg Oliphant and Harry Cameron began off-season began off training in November, and many of their teammates had joined them. Greg Thomas moved to Wests from Brothers, Richie Twist was expected to come back, and Wests also picked up Steve McCosker from Toowoomba and Kim McKenna from Wide Bay. That's four players who all play lock forward to add to the depth already at Wests, with two A-grade lock forwards already at the team in Norm Carr and John Rebo. Centre Greg Heading had returned to Gympie, but with plenty of A-grade talent on their books and a number of players returning from injury, the squad would be much stronger. Redcliffe Secretary Don McLennan said that Redcliffe just have to be a five-minute better team than they were last year. Barry Muir remained as coach at Redcliffe, and he said that it, he would settle for being a three-point better side than he was last year after losing the grand final by two points in the last couple of minutes. <laughs> Redcliffe lost a lot of forward strength when Ian Tiny, Rod Halley, Forrester Grayson, Alan Noonan, Glenn Chambers and Steve Nicholson all moved on. But Redcliffe's recruitment included John Barber, Darrell Pearce, Chris Wellman, Lindsay Sinclair, Terry Donnelly, Kevin Cherry and Mick Rathbone. So the Dolphins were still feeling pretty confident. The retention committee chairman at Brothers, Tom Hickey, said that 
There was some rebuilding required out at Corbett Park and John Lohman, who took over as coach at Brothers, might just be the answer. The Leprechauns lost Murray Schultz, Greg Thomas, Lester Young, John Alexander and Bernie Ward. Their gains were mostly unknowns, but Alan Power, Greg Jackwitz, Vince Raleigh, Brian Walsh, Rick Willett, Glenn Chambers and Alan Atwell would all be out to make an impression. After a semi-final appearance in 1975, Winner Manley were confident of repeating their success and taking it one step further. Although some of their A-grade players had moved on, they still had the nucleus of a top side retaining Ken Churchill, Barry McTaggart, Nev Hornery, Lou Platts, John Rhodes, John Dowling, Warren Orr, Warren Milne, Jim Wadsworth, Bob Hardy, Des Lee, Roy Robinson and Neil Kingston. They also added Alan Stebbins and Wayne Height from Easts, as well as Gold Coast Greg King. Rockhampton's Greg Denman, Newcastle Centre Doug Newman, and North Queenslanders Mark Loopy and Ian Bostead. Has to be a relative of Kerry's, eh, Chris? Yes, he is. He's uh, Kerry's older brother, I'm pretty sure. Older, but it's definitely his brother. Okay. They also had a new coach. Uh, Tom Berry had moved on to coach at Souths, and local coach Jim Lewis took over coaching at Winner Manly. Jim had been coaching for a while and had won numerous premierships with lower grade and junior teams. Well, as we said, former Wynnum coach Tom Berry had moved on to Souths and Souths had lost a few players and signed a number of new players, so their depth should be strong. Their losses were big ones though, with Graham Atherton and John Graham heading to the Gold Coast League. But they retained Greg Vivers, John Grant, Gary Dobrik, Dale Graham and Bruce Astle, along with their forwards Daryl Vanderveld, Bob Muir, Des Lang, Barry Lynch, Bill Kirkbride, Jim Tronk and Brian Weir. Mitch Brennan was working in Canada, but club secretary Ted Beaumont said that he could reappear any day. South also had gained Chris Skelton from Canterbury, along with Steve Riley, Arnold Eusen, Tom Gologly, Ken Nichols and Les Bruce, all from Sydney clubs. They also added Doug Drew and Peter Clark from Norths, as well as Alan Noonan from Redcliffe and a number of juniors and country players, including Pat Phelan and Marshall Caldwell from Townsville. So that takes us through all of the team's preparations prior to the Woolies pre-season competition, which kicked off with a cliffhanger between Souths and Valleys. Scores began at 2-all, then Al McGuinness for Valleys scored before half-time, and they went to the break 7-2 up. South scored after just three minutes into the second half, with new fullback Chris Skelton getting over, and after a Brian Turnbull conversion, it was 7-all. Turnbull kicked a penalty for Souths to go ahead 9-7, and Valley snatched it back after an Alan Mills sidestepping run put him over for a 10-9 lead. Then John Grant made a break and put Bruce Astle away to score in the corner for 12-10 full-time scoreline. It was a great way for the new season to kick off. In other games contested that weekend, Brothers and Redcliffe kept the close scores happening with a 15-14 win to the Dolphins. In fact, in a stirring beginning to 1976, the Woolies pre-season competition was hotly contested. Some snippets from the Courier-Mail attest to the excitement being generated by having the footy back on again. Of a South's loss to Wests... South's opened up the season's prospects when they went down by only one point to Premier's Wests at Pertell Park yesterday. And of a North's win over Brothers... It was a willing game, particularly among the North's forwards, and was mainly clean, with only one flare-up. Easts and Valleys... Easts had to produce all their brilliance to beat Valleys at Lang Park last night. Redcliffe and South's... Redcliffe won a cliffhanger second match at Lang Park last night, beating Souths in a rugby league grand final atmosphere. An astounding semi-final. 
Five players were ordered off in a sensational Woolies Rugby League semi-final at Lang Park last night. And of the final between East and Wests... Wests' overall skill earned them top money of $3,000 in the Woolies Rugby League pre-season final at Lang Park yesterday with a 16-8 win over Easts. I guess it'd be a bit remiss of us to just give a headline like five players sent off and not outline some of the story at least a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that would be glossing over something, that's for sure. So the story is this, Chris. Redcliffe's John Barber was sent off in the first minute by Bernie Pramberg for using his knee on a Wests player straight off from the kickoff. For Wests, Oliphant, Richardson, Cameron and Creer were in brilliant attacking form and had Wests up 9-0 at half-time. After a try early in the second half, Steve Bullough was sent to the sin bin and while still there, Redcliffe hooker Bob Jones was sent off and Redcliffe were down to 11 men. After Bullough returned to the field, a fierce brawl started up in front of the Frank Burke grandstand and Bullough and Rod Bradshaw from Wests were sent off. A minute later, Tony Obst was sent off for using his knees and Redcliffe finished the game with 9 men against 12 and Wests finished the game with 37 points against none. (laughs) Well, the judiciary hearing began at 10 o'clock and didn't finish until 3 a.m. hearing cases against John Barber, who received three weeks off for using his knees on an opponent, Bob Jones, who got two weeks for stamping on an opponent's head, Steve Bolo, two weeks for elbowing an opponent, and another one for using obscene language towards a touch judge, Tony Olds received two weeks for using his knees on an opponent, and Rod Bradshaw received one week for a late tackle. And while appearing at the judicial hearing, referee Bernie Pramberg had his car vandalised. Wiring, hoses and air vents were torn off the engine and damage was estimated at $50. It sounds like a small number, but when the average weekly wage was just $160, when you take 50 bucks out of that, it cuts a fair bit out of your available cash flow. Yeah, and Dave, that wasn't the only car that was damaged in the car park that night. An irate car owner had his car removed in the car park, came back and kicked the glass door to the BRL office in. He was apprehended and promised to pay the damages. But probably the best story to come out of this whole affair was that during the brawl that erupted near the Frank Burke grandstand and spilled out over the sideline and up to the fence around the ground, a lady leaned over the fence and bashed a West player over the head with her handbag. <laughs> and no, before you say it, she wasn't a Redcliffe fan trying to help out her boys because after she hit that West player, she hauled off and clobbered <laughs> one of the Redcliffe players over the head with the handbag as well. Wow, it's like a scene from a barroom brawl in a spaghetti western, Chris. <laughs> it's a little bit like Wild that. times. Must have been a full moon, hey? Must have been. So the QRL asked the suspended players who had appealed uh, the length of their suspensions to front the QRL board. And Rob McAuliffe wasn't too keen on those hearings going ahead because none of those suspended players had their contracts submitted to and verified by the QRL. So he was concerned that it would lead the QRL open to legal recourse because the players weren't contracted to the QRL. They did go ahead once the QRL had written assurances that the players would abide by their appeals board decisions. The players did write the assurances and all original suspensions were upheld by the QRL except Steve Bullough, who had his two-week ban for use of an elbow reduced to just one week. And that one-week charge for obscene language was also reduced. So, after already missing his first match, Bolo was now free to play that following weekend, although Obst, Barber and Jones, his teammates, would all serve out the remainder of their suspensions. 
Another aspect to come out of the Woolies pre-season competition was that the BRL decided that no more Saturday games would be played at Lang Park. This is something the BRL had been considering for years, and with clubs asking for more home games, and both Channel 2, or the ABC, and Channel 7 saying that they would no longer televise Saturday matches from Lang Park, the BRL made the call to cancel all games at Lang Park on Saturdays. Games may still be played on Saturdays, but they would be at suburban grounds if they went ahead. Otherwise, all games would be played on Sundays, with one game at Lang Park and the other matches shared at suburban venues. North's Devils hosted a luncheon for all the coaches in Brisbane to come and hear a special guest speak and answer their questions. The Courier Mail's Jack Reardon was most impressed by the down-to-earth discussion and answers given to questions raised by the BRL coaches. The speaker in question was none other than Big Jack Gibson. Although it was prior to his Parramatta premierships, Jack had already taken wooden spooners Easts to the semi-finals in one year, and then he took St George to the grand final, Newtown to the preliminary final, and then took Easts to premiership victories in 74 and 75. Reardon noted that one of the coaches who was asking the questions was Winner Manley's Jim Lewis. Jim had four sons, three of whom had represented Queensland schoolboys, Wally, Edwin and Scott. And the youngest, Heath, was only five, but was already playing halfback for the under-sevens and was Winner Manley's A-grade mascot. Jim had coached plenty of junior teams and seen more than his share of interfering parents, so he told his sons to get as far away from him as possible to play their footy. So instead of staying at Winner Manley, Wally and Edwin played for Valley's juniors. Jim said, I know they'll probably come back to Winham one day, but for now they're better off playing somewhere else. It might have taken longer than he thought, but by 1984, young Wally Lewis had returned to the Winner Manley district and with him came three grand finals and two premierships. And when the premiership kicked off in late March, West beat Redcliffe at Lang Park and Jack Reardon noted that three ex-BRL players were currently captaining Sydney sides. Roma product Artie Beetson, who was a member of the Redcliffe Premiership team in 65, was the captain at Eastern Suburbs in Sydney. Bruce Walker, from East in Brisbane, was the captain of North Sydney. And Ray Higgs, also from Redcliffe and also from Roma, had been appointed captain at Parramatta. But Gary Stevens was not a former BRL player when he led South Sydney in the first round of MCO Cup match at Lang Park against South Brisbane. The Brisbane Souths team started well, tackling everything and taking a 4-0 lead into half-time. But by three-quarter time, South Sydney had scored a couple of tries and led by just 10 points to 8. Despite the loss of Greg Vivas before the game, Brisbane Souths forwards tackled with enthusiasm and a penalty and a converted try in the final quarter put the game out of reach of the Magpies as South Sydney eventually won 17-8. In other Round 1 MK Cup fixtures, Toowoomba beat the Northern Territory and North Queensland was too strong for Wide Bay. While Souths proved Brisbane teams can match it with Sydney teams, Brothers proved they can beat them when the Leprechauns scored 6 tries to 2 to beat Penrith by 19-8. to Meanwhile, back in the BRL, Easts beat Souths in a tough game where the Magpies had earmarked Des Morris as the man to contain. They did an excellent job containing Big Des, but younger brother Rod caused some damage to the South's defensive line, and John Lang won the weekly $25 Courier Mail Player of the Week award. A photo of Lang smiling out at the camera with his wife Penny and son, six-month-old Martin, adorned the pages of the Courier Mail, where he told how he enjoyed playing club footy at Easts. The article went on to say that Lang was always one of Easts' best and that he rarely missed a match. Yeah, Dave, and John Lane got his uh, bonus because it was given by the Courier-Mail, but the other major award for the BRL, the Rothmans Medal, wasn't as stable in 1976. 
players almost didn't get their votes for the first couple of weeks. At the end of the 1975 season, the BRL referees had withdrawn their commitment to have anything to do with Rothman's gold medal for the 1976 season. Apparently, when the award dinner for 75 was held, seven of the referees who had refereed first grade games had not been invited. Four referees who were invited withdrew their acceptances just before the dinner was to go ahead. The referees said that if Rothmans didn't value their participation, then they wouldn't participate. Believing that referees were essential to the voting process because they were impartial, Rothmans and the referees hammered out a truce over the off-season in 76, and the BRL referees had awarded points for the Rothmans medal for those first couple of weeks of the season, and they would no doubt award points for round three as well where they'd soon get the chance to award points to Redcliffe prop Forrester Grayson, even though we said earlier that he'd moved on. Yeah, Chris, this is an interesting one. Prior to the 76 season starting, Grayson wanted to return to the country and do a Ray Higgs. In 74, Higgs left Redcliffe and played a season in Nambour. From Nambour, Higgs made the Queensland side and was later selected to play for Australia. Grayson signed with Wests in Maryborough and the week before representative trials were to be conducted, Grayson got himself sent off and suspended. Because he was suspended, he wasn't considered for the Maryborough trial sides. Because he wasn't able to be selected for Maryborough, he was ineligible to play for Wide Bay. And if not selected for Wide Bay, he couldn't play for Queensland Country. And if he couldn't play for Queensland Country, he couldn't make the Queensland side. So Grayson was back at Redcliffe, negotiating a new deal for the remainder of 1976. Oh. Others who may secure votes in the Rothmans medal count in week three were Valley's players. For the first time in 1976, Marty Scanlon's boys brought up a win, this time against Easts. Former Valley's forward John Payne opened the scoring at Langlands Park when he potted a field goal for the Tigers to lead 1-0. At this stage of the season, that one point meant nothing, but it takes on some significance later in the year. Despite being down by a point early, Valley's went on the attack, and when Strudwick was pulled down just short of the try line, he played the ball forward and raced after it to score. He was tackled on his way to the ball, and there was no doubt that he would have gotten to the ball first, so the referee gave Valleys a penalty try. Valleys then rattled up a further 16 unanswered points to lead 19-1, and a 19-4 lead at half-time. At full-time, the Tigers had come back strongly, but Valleys held on to win, with a Ross Strudwick field goal helping Valleys to a 20-17 win. In another Week 3 matchup for the records, Winner Manley held Wests at bay until the very end of the game. Winner were in front for the majority of the second half. 13-12, 15-12, 15-all, 17-15, 17-all, and with just two minutes until full-time, Jeff Richardson kicked a field goal to put Wests ahead for the first time. And then from the kickoff, Richie Twist ran 50 metres to score a try and gave Wests a 23-17 win. Interestingly, after Bob Patterson downed West in 1970 and continued kicking goals throughout his BRL career with his around-the-corner kicking style, now that he was in Mackay plying his trade, in 1976, Laurie Kavanagh wrote about the new Winner Manley fullback. Winner Manley's fullback, Ian McShane, kicked seven goals from nine attempts with his unusual instep kicking style. So despite Patterson using that same style at Wynnum for the past seven years, the around-the-corner style was still considered unusual. So after three rounds, the table was fairly close, as you would expect. West out in front on six points, East, Redcliffe and Brothers next with four points, making up the top four, and then North, South and Valleys on two, and Wynnum yet to register any points, but that was certainly getting close every single week. Unfortunately for Wynnum, though, their woes continued the next week when Valleys beat them 19-12. 
East swamped West in the second half, and West dropped more than half their forward pack for the next game. And Brothers had beaten Redcliffe, who also made sweeping changes before their next fixture. Finally, Norths held on against South 19-16, but injuries to both teams came from that game. Norths captain and winger Bruce Warwick, who was moved from fullback to wing to 5-8, made a last-ditch tackle in the very last play of the game and ended up with a depressed cheek fracture. And South's Barry Lynch had a head cut that required 20 stitches. South's coach Tom Berry said after the game that he would like to know what caused Barry's bad cut. It is unreal. But a touch judge said that he saw the incident and it was reported in the paper when Lynch dived to make a tackle he missed and copped the Norths player's boot across the top of his head. In this game and the game between East and West on Easter Monday, characters from Disney on Parade were presented at Lang Park and kids at the ground had a chance to win free passes to the Disney on Parade performance. This visit by Disney on Ice or Disney on Parade was a fairly regular occurrence during the 70s. While these early games were being played, Redcliffe and Easts played AMCO Cup matches against New Zealand opposition with drastically different results. Redcliffe were beaten 30-5 by Auckland and Easts won 38-7 over a Canterbury-New Zealand outfit. It could have been worse for Canterbury though because Easts were without their regular kicker, Ron Clark, and prop forward Neil Crozaz kicked just 4 from 10, while his replacement, Wayne Lindenberg, missed 3 from 3. Must have been a windy night. Must have been. The Lang Park Trust were trying to entice the BRL to stage games back at Lang Park on Saturdays, and after all of the representative fixtures and midweek AMCO Cup matches were completed. For their part, the BRL had put together the suburban grounds draw, and all teams were playing at least nine matches at home. When a match was considered attractive enough to be played at Lang Park on a Sunday or holiday, the home team on the draw would receive $1,500 compensation. So last weekend, Valleys versus North was scheduled at Newman Oval and played at Lang Park. So Valleys received a $1,500 compensation payment. Well, Sydney superstars were also in the news. Graham Langlands had finally decided to hang up his boots, although he would continue as St George's coach for the 1976 season. A drastic loss of form at the beginning of the season prompted Langlands to end his playing career. I know this is a podcast celebrating Brisbane Rugby League, but a few words on Graham Langlands won't be out of place. He was almost lured north with a huge offer and just one of the many to get away from the ever-thinking and ever-scheming Ron McAuliffe. So Langlands was born in 41 in Wollongong and represented New South Wales high schools from 55 until 57. When he was 18, he was playing first grade in Wollongong and at 21, he got his first break playing for New South Wales country. He played for New South Wales that year and joined St George in 63. He debuted for Australia in that same year. Across his career, Langlands played 227 games for St George, 33 for New South Wales and 45 for Australia, retiring as Australia's most capped player. On his retirement, he also coached St George, New South Wales and Australia. We're talking about 1976 and this was the last year he coached New South Wales, while last year was the final time that he coached Australia. It was a glittering career full of wonderful highlights but the saga of the white boots in the 1975 grand final will haunt him. Prior to the 75 grand final against the Jack Gibson coached Artie Beetson captained Eastern Suburbs side, he had a groin injury and received a painkilling injection. It was also the first time he wore a pair of white boots as part of an Adidas sponsorship deal. White boots don't mean anything today, but in 1975 they were a huge deal. The painkilling injection hit a nerve and Langlands had no control over his leg. During the game, with the St George tactics to kick long and keep East pinned in their own territory, 
Langlands tried to kick the ball and missed it. It was clear that something was wrong and his performance didn't get much better. He argued with St George Secretary Frank Facer at half-time about going back on. At half-time, the score was only 5-0, but with Langlands unable to kick properly, St George had little chance of keeping East brilliant attackers at bay, and Artie Boys ran in seven tries to win 38-0. Because he'd played so poorly in what was to be his last match, Langlands decided to go around one more time in 1976. But after a few games early in the season, his form wasn't that what it used to be. As well as Langlands being in the news, was another big name that got away from the scheming McAuliffe. Brothers had made a substantial offer to Bob Fulton to come to Brisbane as a captain coach. Fulton noted that he wanted to win a premiership at Manly first, but he was interested in the offer. A couple of weeks later, and Fulton, his wife and daughter, were in Brisbane watching Brothers demolish Winner Manly at Corbett Park, and he admitted that he was here with a view to seeing the setup at Brothers, with which he was very impressed. He was a mate of Brothers' new 5'8", Chris Ryan, who came to Brothers from Manly Warringah, where Fulton had played all of his first grade career for the past 11 years, since 1966. Yeah, and unfortunately, when we uh, go to air, or not when we go to air, but when we're actually here recording this podcast, we've only just heard the news that uh, Bob Fulton has recently passed away. It's a pretty sad situation, particularly when it's not one that's just caused by natural causes, but... uh, where Fulton's sickness had uh, taken hold and, and taken him away from us. He was certainly a great player. I remember him just at the, um, when I was starting to really follow the footy and, and get into what was going on, and Bob Fulton was certainly somebody who uh, could catch your eye. I didn't particularly like watching him too much because I didn't enjoy Manly, and, uh, and I didn't enjoy him playing for New South Wales against Queensland either, but, geez, he could play pretty well. Yeah, he was a giant of the game. Yeah. Mm. Well, in the AMCO Cup, Valleys were soundly beaten by the Riverina district of New South Wales country. And in the BRL, the competition after seven weeks were nearing the conclusion of the first round. But before we got to the end of the first round, the first set of representative games took place. South Queensland was to play New South Wales country and there'd be a possibles probables match for selectors to watch to enable them to get a guide on who to pick for Queensland against New South Wales. Initially, the New South Wales country fixture was to be a Queensland versus New South Wales country match, but the QRL modified that to make it one of the trials that was leading up to the interstate game. In a meeting with the New South Wales Rugby League, the QRL made the change to the fixture. A month later, when they heard about the game not being against a full Queensland team, New South Wales country were upset and said that Queensland were scared to face them, so they changed the fixture and didn't bother telling them. The first they heard of it was reading it in the newspaper. Well, the QRL made no comment, but the Courier-Mail's chief journalist, Jack Reardon, outlined that McAuliffe had a conversation with the New South Wales Rugby League a month previous and had alerted them to the change. The New South Wales country representative, John O'Toole, is on the New South Wales Rugby League board and has his office in the same building as New South Wales Rugby League president, Kevin Humphreys. So if the New South Wales Country League want to complain about not knowing about the change of fixture, then they need to talk to the representative in the New South Wales Rugby League office. While that's certainly true, it's probably also true that the change be flagged directly with the opposition as well. Still, it always makes for entertaining reading when they go back and forth like this. The New South Wales country team was chock full of stars like Greg Brentnell, Mick Cronin, John Ballasty, Ron Pillen, Len Bertoldo, and in previous years had players like John Donnelly, John Dorohy, Terry Fay, and others who'd played for New South Wales and Australia. In those previous years, they were unbeaten on tours of Queensland centres, as well as their big games against Brisbane or a South Queensland selection. 
so they had every right to feel confident about beating a full-strength Queensland team as well. But in 1976, the South Queensland team turned the tables. The defence of the South Queensland team was rock-solid, allowing only one try, and after Redcliffe speedster Brian Gardner was sent clear by a perfect pass from Ian Bosted, he was off to the races, beating three defenders on a 70-metre run to score, and South Queensland brought to an end the three-year unbeaten run of New South Wales country teams in Queensland. Across all of the trials, the names of players who didn't make Queensland selection but who impressed with their play were Greg Oliphant, Graham Quinn, Tom Gologoli, Willie Weatherall, John Grant, Peter Lease, and there were plenty of willing forwards in the curtain raiser Possibles versus Probables games. That was won by the Possibles team by 24-22 to after trailing 17-3 at half-time. But the Queensland team chosen to play New South Wales was Ian Pearce from Redcliffe, Brian Gardner from Redcliffe, Tony Obst, also from Redcliffe, Harry Cameron from Wests, John Rhodes from Winnemanley, Alan Smith from Toowoomba, Ross Strudwick from Valleys, Terry Donnelly from Redcliffe, Des Morris from Easts, Greg Platts from Toowoomba, David Wright from Brothers, John Lang from Easts, and the captain Greg Vivers playing at Souths. Ian Bosted, Greg McCarthy, Rod Morris and John Payne were selected as reserves. As teams were fighting out the final weeks of the first round of matches, the QRL team would tour North Queensland, so clubs would be without their services of those state players while they were away. It made no difference to East's John Payne. He'd been sent off and suspended for two weeks, but being in the Queensland team, he'd be in North Queensland for the first week of that suspension and then playing in Sydney for the second week. Another judicial faux pas was the BRL judiciary fining Redcliffe prop John Barber $200 after he was sent off. He paid the fine, but at the following week's BRL meeting, they addressed the fine and said that constitutionally they didn't have the power to fine a player, so the fine was repaid to Barber. Now the final week saw a very exciting match between Redcliffe and Souths, where both sides scored long-range tries and produced long-range attacking raids. The try of the game was an effort from Souths that covered 120 metres. Redcliffe halfback Brian Winnie broke from a scrum and made a break but in the crushing tackle of fullback Dale Graham, the ball was spilt. South centre John Grant, who had been picked at lock forward for this match, was on the spot. He grabbed the ball and headed across field behind his own goalposts to link up with his outside speedmen. He found John Salter, who took the ball across the quarter line before serving winger Tom Gologoli, who raced the remaining 60 metres to score a try. It wasn't enough for Souths, who went down to Redcliffe due to an off day with a boot from Gologoli, who managed only three from seven shots at goal. And while this weekend of club footy finished with Wests and Brothers on top of the table to contest the President's Cup when they next met, the Queensland team were in North Queensland preparing for a match against New South Wales. Coach Barry Muir had predicted a 20-point winning margin, but he might have misread what was happening in North Queensland. Former Valleys coach Henry Holloway who'd won so many BRL Grand Finals, was now coaching in North Queensland after a terrible year for Valleys in 75, when they took the wooden spoon back to Newman Oval. Holloway had his North Queensland charges all set to tackle all day and smother whatever their opponents could throw at them. It was very Valleys-like in their early 70s success, and it worked. When full-time rolled around, it was North Queensland 14, Queensland 8. With zero North Queensland players considered for state selection, there was probably a bit of we'll show them attitude from the North Queensland team as well. But the North Queensland captain, former West player Peter Loopy, said after the match that Our tackling was 100% and that's what put the state side off their game. 
Quite frankly, I think Barry Muir's got a real plateful. Someone's going to have a lot of hard work to do over the next week. For his part, Muir was magnanimous and said that the North Queensland side had defended well and the loss was the best thing that could have happened to his side. While the Queensland side headed south to prepare for the New South Wales onslaught, brothers were progressing to the next round of the AMCO Cup after a win over New South Wales Country's Northern Division and Jack Reardon was writing about referee Don Lancashire. For those who haven't been following the Don Lancashire story, here's a brief outline. Don was a Brisbane referee and then moved to Sydney where he progressed through the ranks to referee test matches. On his return to Brisbane, he applied to be admitted to the BRL Referees Association and was denied. He appealed to the BRL and they said he should be admitted. The referees then appealed to the QRL and the QRL said that he should also be admitted. The referees from Brisbane denied him entry to their association so it looked like he would retire. The following year the QRL appointed Lancashire to a couple of top representative appointments. The Brisbane referees put a ban on him saying that they would not run touch with him because he was not registered with an association. The New South Wales referees followed suit. Now Lancashire had been a member of country referee associations and as such was eligible to referee QRL appointments. The QRL appointed him to the first interstate game of 1976 in Sydney. However, the Sydney referees were still on the Brisbane bandwagon and would not run touch if Lancashire refereed. We'll keep our eyes, ears pricked for any further info on the Don Lancashire story. It's been an intriguing one, hasn't it, Chris? It has been. It has been. <laughs> so meanwhile, Alan Smith developed a shoulder injury after the North Queensland trial and the selectors brought in Steve Farquhar. Barry Muir wanted to bring Greg McCarthy straight into the side, but despite the fact that Farquhar hadn't played 5-8 for his club side East all season, the selectors said that Farquhar had been selected as a starting 5-8 and McCarthy should remain on his bench for his utility value. New South Wales were without Beetson, Coote, Fulton, Brannigan and Brass, but their replacements, although not huge names, have all played for Australia. Guys like John Peard, Greg Pearce, Dennis Fitzgerald and Alan McMahon were good replacements. Despite Barry Muir's best efforts to get the best out of his charges, New South Wales ran all over Queensland and won 33-9. After the game, New South Wales coach Graham Langland said that he thought his team went all right for a team of cockroaches. This was the first time that Barry Muir had used the term cockroaches to describe the New South Wales teams that his charges had to play. Many of the Queensland players flew straight back to Brisbane to play in their team's club matches on the Sunday following that interstate match. On a weekend of wet weather, Wests, Winner Manly, Valleys and Easts had wins to have the second round of fixtures begin with Wests on top with 14 points, followed by Brothers, Easts and Valleys in the top four, all on 10 points. They were followed by Redcliffe on eight and North, Souths and Wynnum on four points. The New South Wales team had come north to play Queensland on the Wednesday night and the final match on Sunday. BRL referee Ian Smith would referee the Wednesday night game, while New South Wales referee Gary Cook would do the Sunday game. After the even handling of the match at the SCG last weekend, there were many south of the border who still rated Don Lancashire as the best referee in Australia. Which makes it even more confusing, but mm. we'll try to leave that until we get more around it. Yeah. So Queensland had made some changes to the team that was soundly beaten in Sydney. Despite Ross Strudwick playing well against Tom Radonikus, the weight of good form from Greg Oliphant had him break into the Queensland side. Norm Carr's consistent form also had him break into the side, along with Steve Creer, Graham Quinn and Alan Mills. John Payne and Ian Bostead had also been promoted from the reserves. In Carr's case, Wests had five top-class lock forwards in their first-grade squad. 
and Norm wasn't the first picked for West. In fact, in eight weeks of competition football, he had broken into West's top side and forced his way into the Queensland team, which speaks enormously for his patch of form at that time. New South Wales had made a few changes, one of those being the introduction of George Paponis at hooker. John Lang had beaten every comer in scrums over his interstate career, and I can't think of a time where I read a report that didn't say he also outplayed them in the field. He had disposed of George Piggins, even in a team that lost 9-33. to Lang won the scrums and played better around the field, so New South Wales tried another hooker. On Wednesday night at Lang Park, Lang won the scrums by 13-10 to and won the Man of the Match award. Early in the second half, Alan Mills and Ted Goodwin and Mick Cronin engaged in an old-fashioned kicking duel. Mills had a good game in attack and defence. Unfortunately, without a recognised goal kicker, Mills took the kicks at goal and didn't fare well. Had he kicked all of his goals, Queensland would have won by one point, having played so well that they got to within five points of New South Wales, losing 10-5. to five. All of Queensland's forwards played well, especially John Lang and Norm Carr, but one of their best was halfback Greg Oliphant. Unfortunately for Lang, he received a blow to his knee, and after cooling down, it became very swollen. Lang did play in the third and final game of the series, and again he scored a try, and that was one in each of the three interstate games from Lang. He won the scrums again and played well in open field play. Greg Vivers, David Wright, Greg Platts, Graham Quinn, Alan Mills, Norm Carr, Ian Bosted, Steve Creer and Greg Oliphant were all outstanding performers for Queensland and played as well as, or better than, their opponents. In that final match, New South Wales won again, this time 15-13, by kicking a last-minute penalty goal. Oh, last-minute <laughs> penalty goals, last-minute <laughs> tries... 10 minutes of rattling up points. It's just, yeah, I remember the 70s. It's starting to haunt me. <laughs> uh, don't worry, we got some revenge later on and a few decades later. Yes. Well, while these interstate matches were taking place, the BRL continued with Eastern Valleys winning their games and jumping into equal second on the ladder, just two points behind the leading west side. Brothers and Redcliffe were just two points behind them to make up the top four. And in one of these games, West went down to a committed Norths team with Jeff Richardson injured West struggled a little to put a cohesive effort together. One person who was keen to make an impact on the game was Max Williamson. In a four-minute period, he came onto the field as a replacement. Two minutes later, he scored a try, and two minutes after that, he threw a stiff arm at Daryl Broman and was sent off. It was a great four-minute cameo to score the Panthers' only points, but Norths had already had complete control of the game, eventually winning 15-3. to Early in the game, Wayne Stewart put on a heavy tackle on Athol Gear and the fiery wingers went at it all day. Laurie Kavanagh noted that it set the pace for the match with fists and feet flying frequently. Well, another match that uh, during this time that tells the story of many matches that afflicted the Wynnum Manly Seagulls. Even though Wynnum had bought well and often had players and coaches capable of making inroads into the competition, they often fell short in so many matches that were closely contested. Well, their Week 9 match-up with Redcliffe was one such game. With the scores tied at 4-all, Wynnum were on the attack when a Ron Milne pass that was sure to put an outside support over for a try was knocked down. Redcliffe's winger Craig Fenton swooped on the ball and ran over 70 metres to score. Moments later, John Dowling had a shot at penalty goal and missed, which would have narrowed the scoreline to 7-6. But then just moments after that, Ian Pearce had a shot at penalty goal and kicked it, which made the real scoreline 9 points to 4. There was some belief missing at Cougaroy Oval because the quality of play was almost always there. It was just something in the polish that was lacking. 
As the competition moved away from interstate fixtures and concentration was back solidly on the BRL, David Falkenmeyer reported that South's young Tero winger Mitch Brennan was off to play gridiron football in Canada. He would leave the following week, halfway through the BRL season, to take up a one-season position with the Toronto Argonauts. Mitch had visited his sister in Canada the previous year and had trialled with the Argonauts, but thought nothing had come of it and came back to play with Souths. He said that the money was too good an opportunity to pass up at this stage of his life. He was set to play as a running back in the Canadian Football League and left Brisbane with South's blessing. There was more to this story to unfold, but at that midway point of the BRL season, Souths had lost their most potent attacking weapon. Yeah, Brendan's Canadian contract didn't end up being all that he'd hoped for and he was back in rugby league before too long. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, the BRL had decided to abandon Lang Park for Saturday matches to take place at suburban grounds. The thought was that the clubs would gain greater revenue at home matches through food and drink sales. By midway through the season, it was reported that the games for clubs was mixed and a new vote was taken on returning to Lang Park for a Saturday match of the round. Early in the season, both Channel 2, the ABC, and Channel 7, who had previously telecasted the BRL Saturday matches, said they would no longer do so, and this impacted the BRL's decision to send games to suburban grounds. But after a close vote, where it was decided by nine votes to eight to return to Saturday matches at Lang Park, both the ABC and Channel 7 are believed to be interested in telecasting again from the beginning of the new financial year. So, from the beginning of the round three fixtures, BRL matches would once again be staged at Lang Park on a Saturday afternoon and would be televised. After losing Mitch Brennan, Souths appeared to lose something more and didn't contest their matchup with Brothers as one might expect. Brothers jumped out to a 25-4 lead at half-time. The previous week, Brothers led Valleys 12-0 at half-time, but the diehards came out and ran them down, winning 16-12. There would be no such comeback from the Magpies in Week 10. Brothers went on with the job, winning 43-4, helping Ian Douth to the accolade of being the first player in the BRL to top 100 points for the season. In other matches on this same weekend, Easts thrashed Valleys and Winner Manley showed that winning was possible. Bringing out the old hoodoo where they would quite often rattle up a win over western suburbs, the Seagulls once again showed that they had the ability to match it with the top teams in the competition. It would seem that when things didn't always fall their way, they struggled to grab back the momentum of a game. No struggle in this one against Wests. Their straight line of defence held all day, allowing one try to Wayne Stewart in the corner. Winner Manley scored twice and held on for a 10-9 win over the competition-leading Wests team. Well, the final game of that round was won by Redcliffe, who held crisis meetings at Redcliffe Leagues Club during the week. Coach Barry Muir was being grilled by the board about their lack of results so far in the 76th season. I'm not sure if Muir had the answers for the board, but he seemed to have some answers on the field. After 21 minutes, Redcliffe had to play with 12 men when Tony Obst was sent off for flattening North's 5'8 and captain Bruce Warwick in back play. It didn't seem to matter. North led 2-0 at that stage, and by the time the full-time rolled around, Redcliffe had won the game 24-13. Redcliffe had plenty of top performers in this game, but the pick of them was hooker Bob Jones, who won the scrums 18-11, even though he was a man down in pack weight because Redcliffe opted to play without a lock forward, sending Chris Wellman into the centres. Jones was also outstanding in general play, being compared with John Lang. Unfortunately for North's goal kicker Bruce Warwick, he missed a few shots at goal during that Redcliffe game. Watching the game was Queensland selector Brett 
was Queensland selector Bert Quinn of Wide Bay. Quinn and his fellow state selectors had been lambasted through the media earlier in the year when they sent a Queensland team to do battle with New South Wales without a recognised goal kicker. John Sattler and former Norths coach Bob Hagen were two of the outspoken critics of the Queensland selectors and they were sitting behind Quinn at Bishop Park as he watched Bruce Warwick miss three shots at goal in a row. He couldn't resist it and said, Gee, you'd think Norths would pick a goal kicker in the team. <laughs> Further news came out of the Redcliffe Norths match as well, when Norths coach Tommy Bishop sent a letter to the BRL Referees Association listing examples of alleged incompetency by referee Stan Scamp. Bishop said, I don't normally complain about referees, but Scamp's display was well below standard. Moving into the second half of the season, Wests were in some trouble, with six players doubtful of taking their place in the team after a 24-8 loss to Manly Warringah in the Amco Cup. But despite being without numerous regular first-grade players, Jeff Richardson had returned from a broken cheekbone and led the Panthers to a win over Eastern Suburbs. Also in the news was future Tiger Shane McNally, who was making his debut in a three-man front row that consisted of three hookers, as Wests put McNally, Gary Prickett and Kel Brown to work in the front row, with each of them having a go at hooker during the match. <laughs> Lang won the scrums overall, but West's trio took the honours in the second half, which helped to set up the win. In other games, Wynnum beat Valleys, Norths beat Souths, and Ian Douth led Brothers to their second big win in a row, which catapulted him into the Queensland team as the form winger of the competition and a leading goal kicker. In other changes to the Queensland team to take on the touring St Helens side during the week, Jeff Richardson was rushed straight back into the state side, and the selectors recognised the error of their ways, and included Des Morris in the reserves after they had dropped the best Queensland forward from the first interstate game. Morris was to the fore again against St Helens, and with the support of Greg Platts, Greg Vivers, David Wright, his brother Rod and teammate John Lang, they dominated the St Helens pack. Ian Douth scored a try and kicked six goals, and people were wondering what the story might have been had he been included in the Queensland team for the New South Wales matches earlier in the season. With scorelines in the second and third games 10-5 and 15-13, it could make you ponder what might have been. Well, Douth was at it again the following weekend when he kicked six goals to help Brothers to a 15-8 President's Cup win over Wests. The win by Brothers and Redcliffe's defeat of East propelled Brothers into equal first on the points ladder. Every result over Week 13 weekend was an upset, and it threw the competition ladder into chaos when Souths, who were previously considered out of the running, defeated Winner Manly, who had been the giant killers, winning five of their previous six games. So coming into the end of Round 2, the ladder was Wests, East and Brothers, all on 16 points. Valleys and Redcliffe next on 14 and they were followed by Wynnum and Norths on 10 and Souths on 8. What had looked like a clear-cut top 5 the previous weekend now looked like it was just a bit closer with all teams out of the 5 getting that one win closer to the semi-final cut-off. In a side note on those upset wins, Redcliffe hooker Bob Jones, who was likened to John Lang earlier in the season, played against Lang on the weekend and he shared the scrums 7-6 and outplayed him in the open winning the $25 Courier Mail Best and Fairest bonus. And as teams prepared for the final week of the second round of the competition, East captain coach Des Morris had a complaint for the BRL schedulers. They'd given East a Sunday game, followed by a Saturday game, when East had to play a midweek Amco Cup match in between the two matches. Even though Des and Rod Morris and John Payne didn't play the midweek match, 
The Tigers acquitted themselves very well against the Canterbury-Bankstown team that was running fourth in the New South Wales Rugby League competition. Canterbury won the game 13-7, but it did show that Brisbane teams were capable of competing with their Sydney counterparts. Other news gracing the page at the time was a story by David Falkenmeyer that brothers were chasing Bob Fulton. As we've already mentioned, brothers were very much in the market for Fulton, and Fulton was very much in the market for a move to Corbett Park. But brothers president Frank Mellett said that negotiations would cease until after the season, as incorrect reports about Fulton's proposed move north were becoming destabilising for both Fulton and the brothers team. And Laurie Kavanagh wrote a piece that had Sydney promoter Barry Ross promoting a sprint matchup between Brian Gardner and the Oakland Raiders gridiron star, former 100-metre gold medalist Jim Hines. The world champion footballer's sprint championship would take place in San Francisco after an Oakland Raiders match at the end of their season, when Gardner would be en route to England to take up a contract with Warrington. And then in the final week of round two, after beating first competition leaders West and then accounting for competition giant killers winner Manly, South Magpies beat Redcliffe in a Lang Park match and drew much closer to the top five. With brothers Wests and East also winning on the weekend, the competition ladder was just that little more congested in the middle, with Valleys Redcliffe still on, in the top five on 14, but now South, North and Wynnum were all on 10 points, just two wins behind them. After Brothers East and West had all won, the three teams were equal first after the second round. With Brothers on top three points differential, they would contest the Peter Scott Memorial match against East, who had jumped clear of West by a single point in differential after a Jeff Naylor field goal on the weekend, which not only put them one point ahead of Winner Manley on the field, but also nudged them one point ahead of West in points differential. Coincidentally, neither team would have to wait long, as Brothers and East were drawn to play each other the very next weekend in week one of the third round. And one interesting piece of news in the papers during this week was that Les Cleal and his 18-year-old brother Noel were coaching and playing in Wandai in the South Burnett League. Wandai is about three hours north of Brisbane. Bunny Pierce from Redcliffe had been playing in Blackbutt in the South Burnett League and there was a plea for Bunny to return after Wandai demolished the Blackbutt A-grade side by 74 points to nil. With the Cleal brothers leading the way, Wandai was favoured to win the South Burnett Grand Final. Those who have listened to our Episode 4 interview with Ken Churchill would know that Churchill led Wandai to a South Burnett Premiership victory when he was there coaching them in the early 80s as well. And as a past player of that Wandai team, I can say, go the Wolves. <laughs> I remember seeing uh, Noel Cleal. Um, Les was probably a bit before my time, but yeah, Noel was certainly a very destructive player. Goodness they, me. Yeah. They were pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, play second row or centre and um, yeah, very destructive, both of them. Yeah, and mean buggers too. <laughs> Before we jump back into the BRL, the sole surviving Brisbane team in the AMCO Cup, Brothers, played in their quarterfinal match against Balmain in deplorable conditions at Leichhardt Oval. Brothers Greg Keane was playing his first A-grade match, and as the hooker for the Leprechauns, just couldn't get them a fair share of the ball. With a 17-6 scrum advantage, Balmain was able to exert enough pressure to put points on the board and ran out 19-3 winners. One of the highlights for Brothers fans would have been seeing one of their own in Golden Black as Dennis Monte was playing for Balmain after a long injury layoff. The soggy ground didn't seem to weaken too many legs out at Corbett Park as the following Sunday Brothers overcame a determined but undermanned Valley side. One of the bright spots for Brothers in that game was that injured fullback Alan Power was replaced by a young attacking superstar from reserve grade Mark Thomas. In other games of that weekend, 
The only real notable mention was that West's John Rebo scored four tries but didn't win the Man of the Match award. That was reserved for his 5'8", Jeff Richardson. In three games back from a broken cheekbone, Richardson had now collected three Man of the Match awards, scoring three points each week in the Courier Mail's best and fairest competition. In fact, in this game against Norths, when Rebo scored four tries, Richardson was voted as the player of the round and picked up a $25 bonus from the Courier Mail. Well, with Souths and Winter Manly going through a winning run and Valleys and Norths losing a number of games, the BRL moved into Week 17 with East and West on top of the table with 22 points and they were followed by Brothers just two points behind on 20, then Redcliffe on 16, Valleys on 14 and Winham and Souths on 12 and North still just on 10 points. East ran riot in the Week 17 matchup with the Diehards and scored 10 tries in their 46-9 win. Wenham Manley were inspired by Nev Hornery and they beat West convincingly by 27-12. After starting his first A-grade game in previous weeks, Mark Thomas set up three tries for Brothers in their 30-15 win over Souths and after kicking a goal where the ball hit the near upright, wobbled across the face of goal and hit the far upright before wobbling down to the crossbar and flopping over the bar, Ian Pearce was replaced in the second half and Redcliffe had to finish the game with 12 men as they'd already used up their two second half replacements. While it helped to bring Norths back into the match, Redcliffe held on to win 26-18. In week 18, Redcliffe and Brothers had a brawl to start their game and Souths and Norths' match was also marred by some fierce brawling. But with Souths, Wynn and Brothers and Wests all getting up, the latter was getting more congested in those vital positions. East, West and Brothers were all on 24 points at the top. Redcliffe were next on 18 and they were followed by Valleys in 5th spot on 16. But now Souths and Wynnum were just one game behind on 14 points and Norths trailing with 12. With only three more weeks to play, Norths weren't completely out of the semi-final picture, but the focus was on Valleys, Wynnum and Souths for the fifth spot and on West Eastern Brothers for the minor premiership. After the week 19 matches, it got even worse when we saw Souths win again and both Valleys and Wynnum Manly lose. That meant that the Magpies, who were on the bottom of the table for the majority of the season, now had not just a realistic chance to sneak into the top five, but they were actually in the top five. Easts, Wests and Brothers were at the top of the table, Redcliffe and Clear fourth, and then Souths and Valleys were now on equal footing on 16, with Norths and Wynnum one win back on 14. In Wests' win over Brothers, Jeff Richardson was finally outplayed by a team member when John Rebo scored three points in the Courier Mail Best and Fairest, and Richardson scored only two. It was the first time since his return from a broken cheekbone that Richardson wasn't Wests' best player. And while talking about players scoring points in the Courier-Mail Best and Fairest Award, South's young back rower Arnold Eusen had been scoring points for Souths for his wholehearted displays for a number of weeks since his debut in this 1976 season. He'd been racking up the tackle numbers into the high 40s on a regular basis and was one of the big reasons that Souths had been moving steadily up the ladder to now be in an equal fifth spot. So with just two weeks to play, Souths faltered against Wests but Valleys also lost against Redcliffe, and it meant that Redcliffe assured themselves of a semi-final spot. And with Winner Manley's upset win over Brothers, East and West went into the final round with the minor premiership on their minds, while Winner Manley had now joined Valleys and Souths, and all three of those teams, with Norths just one win behind, were looking at that fifth spot for the semi-finals. 
In the final week of the season, Valleys, Souths, Wynnum and Norths, who were all striving to get into that fifth spot, were all playing the top four teams, so it was anyone's game. And everyone was in with a realistic chance, although it may come down to playoffs for that final semi-final spot. Well, Valleys lost to Wests, and Redcliffe demoralised Souths with a 32-13 win. So, with a better points differential, East had to beat Wynnum Manly to secure the minor premiership. But Wynnum Manly had to reason to secure the win as well. A loss for Wynnum meant that they were locked in a three-way playoff for fifth spot with Valleys and Souths. And if Norths also got up against Brothers, possibly a four-way playoff. The battle of the Tigers and the Seagulls was a torrid one, and one that kept the spectators enthralled. Although the lead changed hands on a regular basis throughout the second half, the score at half-time after a John Payne field goal was East up 1-0. This was at least the second time in the 1976 season that John Payne had kicked a field goal early in the match to set up some kind of a lead for his team. But just after half-time in this game, Nev Hornery snapped a field goal to lock the scores up one all. And then after the second half had just about played itself out, scores were locked 12-all. Wayne Lindenberg had to convert Jeff Naylor's try from wide out to secure the win. Had he missed, West would have taken the minor premiership and the $1,000 prize that went with it, and Wynnum Manley would have also secured fifth spot on the ladder. So Seagulls and Panthers fans would have been hoping Lindenberg's kick went wide. But the pressure kick was straight and true, and East took out the minor premiership, and after Brothers beat Norths, the loss left Wynnum Manley to fight out a fifth-place playoff with Valleys and Souths. On Tuesday night, Souths did battle with Valleys and in a tight game came away with a win by 19 points to 12. With just six minutes left on the clock, a wild brawl spilt out over the sideline and Souths hooker Bob Muir was sent from the field for kicking. He was subsequently suspended for the remainder of South's season, which included the second playoff and any further semi-finals South may, Souths may qualify to be involved in. Valley's Bruce McLeod led the diehards to an early lead, but South's international centre John Grant brought Souths back into the match and the Magpies remained on top despite Valley's desperate attacking raids late in the match. It was reported that South was somewhat tired when they took on Winner Manly in the Thursday night playoff, but in another tight match the scores finished 17-12 in favour of the Magpies. In the period of time with three point tries, 17-12 was just a converted try the difference meaning the game was in the balance until the final whistle blew. Winner Manly were well served by John Rhodes and Jim Fredrickson, and Warren Orr was outstanding. Prop forward Ken Churchill produced a Churchillian effort. Uh-huh, I see what they did there. <laughs> Clever use of words in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific, but it wasn't enough uh, for Winner Manly to turn the tables on a South team that was primed to succeed, with Jim Clancy, Marshall Colwell, John Salter... Daryl Vanderveld and Des Lang, the pick of the South's team, that was led admirably by John Grant again. That was two wins and a demoralising loss in the space of five days. And then just a couple of days later, Souths would have to face Redcliffe again in the first knockout semi-final after they had just beaten them easily the Sunday prior. The Magpies tackled themselves to a standstill and limited Redcliffe to just six points in attack. Bunny Pierce kicked three goals from six attempts whilst South's Tom Gologoli kicked seven from nine. In a game where no tries were scored, field position played an important part in allowing these two accomplished goal kickers to take as many penalty shots at goals as they did. And with South's better field position, Gologoli had more attempts and converted more of them to give South the win again. 
Greg Vivas led the way for his South's team, and fullback Chris Skelton followed his lead. Skelton's try-saving tackles on the flying Brian Gardner and a runaway Chris Wellman ensured Souths remained in front and progressed to meet the loser of the Brothers vs West's major preliminary final. Brothers won the reserve grade game against Valleys after also surviving a midweek playoff, and Souths beat Norths in the third grade knockout preliminary final. In the major preliminary semi-final, Ian Douth landed a penalty goal early in the match, but was replaced with a dislocated shoulder after just 15 minutes. Brothers' lightweight forward pack did a terrific job making ground for themselves, and also in shutting down the Panthers' scrum-based trio of Oliphant, Richardson and Rebo. And with that win, Brothers earned the right to take on East in the major semi-final, while West would now have to take on Souths in the minor semi-final knockout game. In lower grade matches, Winner Manly beat West 21-6 and West beat East in third grade. That set up the second weekend of semi-final football, with Easts making their first appearance in the semi-final race against Brothers in the major semi, and Wests having to fight their way back into contention via the minor semi-final against Giant Killing Souths. In a knockout semi-final that didn't reach great heights, Souths won plenty of ball and attacked all day, only to be repelled by the Western Suburbs defence. In a game that was a dour affair, Wests beat Souths 11-5. Had Tom Gologoli been on target with all of his kicks, Souths may have progressed further, but he kicked just one of four shots. The two earlier matches went with the fate of their A-grade counterparts when Wests beat Brothers in reserve grade and Souths were beaten in third grade by Easts. So in the major semi-final, that was also a tough tackling affair. East defeated Brothers 13-3. Brothers have, may have missed their state winger Ian Douth, but the truth is that Des and Rod Morris, Errol Slingsby, Jeff Naylor and John Abbott were more impactful than the hard-working Brothers pack, which included David Wright and Bob Cock. It wasn't until Chipsy Harrington came onto the field that Brothers started to make some inroads into the East defensive line. In the lower grades, Winner Manly made it back-to-back grand final appearances in third and reserve grade, with wins over Souths in reserve grade and Wests in third grade. After beating Souths, West progressed to the preliminary final to have an attempt at gaining revenge over Brothers for their earlier semi-final loss. In a hard-hitting preliminary final at Lang Park, Wests and Brothers scored two tries each. West's accomplished goal kicker Wayne Stewart kicked six goals, while Brothers' accomplished goal kicker Ian Douth looked on from the grandstand, nursing his dislocated collarbone injury. His replacement kickers Wayne O'Keefe and Alan Power kicked just one goal each from a total of eight attempts. Although beaten, Brothers competed all of their all of the way, and the game was not one for the faint-hearted. Bob Cock was sent off late in the match for some late tackling tactics, but Jack Reardon suggested that they were more in retaliation for the Belting Brothers playmakers had taken from the Wests team. Wests beat Souths in reserve grade, and Easts beat Wests in third grade to set up a grand final day program of Winner Manly vs Easts in the third grade, Winner Manly vs Wests in reserve grade, and Easts vs Wests in A grade. So prior to the big day, East captain coach Des Morris said that West's centre field trio of Oliphant, Rebo and Richardson were the main dangers, while West coach Ron Raper labelled East's big forward pack as the main danger standing between West's and Premiership glory again. On the day of the game, Winner Manly began the day well, repeating their third grade success by defeating East's 27 in their third grade final. Sorry. Easts 20-7 in their third grade final. 
In reserve grade, though, West's Shane McNally scored 14 of West's 17 points in their defeat of Winnemanley by 17 points to 9. In A grade, the game began in strange fashion. Wayne Lindenberg put on a step and broke the line, and from a quick play the ball, John Payne again kicked an early field goal for East to go up by one point to nil. This was not the first time Payne had used these tactics, as we mentioned earlier. At least two of the other games when he did this, East went on to win. About five minutes after the Payne field goals, West's Wayne Stewart converted a penalty kick, and then West's went on the attack. They passed the ball left and right, several passes in each direction. East's defence was superb, scrambling to shut down every attacking raid. But after one such attacking raid, Gary Prickett was pulled down inches from the line. He got to his feet quickly, played the ball forward and dived on it to score the first try. But John Payne then flattened Max Williamson in a square up, with Williamson ending up on his back in back play. The touch judge was in to report and Wayne Stewart kicked another penalty. And at half time, the score was 9-1. Although East had been attacking well when they had the ball, West had a mountain of possession early. Prickett won the scrums 3-1 against Johnny Lang early and referee Bernie Pramberg had given West the penalties 7-0 after East had the very first penalty of the game. The weight of possession, Jeff Richardson's tactical long-range kicking in general play and accurate goal kicking by Wayne Stewart had West's well on top in the first half. But East kept attacking and near half-time Rod Morris was tackled into touch just inches from the try line. In the second half, Gary Prickett sniped out of dummy half and popped the ball back inside to a support player who gave it to Richardson. Instead of a long raking kick to East try line, he put in a short range chip and chased it. Roger Kuhn, the East fullback, came at the ball at 100 miles an hour and the bounce beat him terribly and went over his shoulder. As he was racing forward, Jeff Richardson caught the bouncing ball going the other way. With gold jerseys flooding back to close down Richardson's run, he popped it over the top of a defender to Greg Oliphant. Oliphant juggled the ball, looking like he was going to drop it as he almost fell over, with East players converging on him, and when he finally gained control of the ball, John Rebo flashed up on his left, accepted a pass and raced over to score. At 12-1, East were in trouble. Despite the two tries to Wests, East defence had actually been outstanding. They covered almost everything that West threw at them, and West threw plenty at them. The passing raids by West were accompanied by running and sniping in different gaps so they were punching in the East defensive line. Even so, the Tigers kept closing those gaps. And with the ball in hand though, East could never really get anything going. The Panthers' defence was equally good and in the end became overwhelming and bustling. It caused East to make errors when scoring opportunities were evident. By the time the game was done, East had given away too much possession and West were brilliant when they had it and they went on to win the game by 16 points to 1 after Wayne Stewart maintained scoreboard pressure throughout the day, kicking 5 goals. After being knocked out of the 3rd grade premiership race in the preliminary final, Wests had secured the reserve grade and A grade premiership crowns and with them the club championship. Ron Raper was judged coach of the year and it was a well-deserved accolade. His club wasn't as dominant as the Panthers' sides of the 1972 season, but they were near the top of the table throughout the season and played the same brand of scintillating attack and crunching defence. When you can add the experience of the 1975 season and a general like Jeff Richardson who got clean ball from Greg Oliphant, it meant that Wests were always going to be hard to beat in 1976. 
Well, well done to the Panthers. It's uh, our wrap of the 1976 season. Congratulations to Ron Raper and those Western Suburbs Panthers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please jump onto the platform that you listen to and give us a rating and a review so others can find us too. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you don't miss any of our episodes. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at BRL Moments in Time, you can contact us via our website and via our social media pages. Search for BRL Moments in Time on Facebook and on Instagram and get in contact with us there. Or our website, which is brl-momentsintime.com. This podcast was developed and produced on the lands of the Yagara, Yugara and Yagarapal people of the Ipswich region and we acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians. See you next time. Come on, see. Come on, see. West Panthers fighting team. Come on, see. Come on, see. They're the best that's ever been. Take a pass around the ball like you've never seen before. Keep your dodge and run and win all the scrubs and more. They are the bestest team of all. In league football, come on and see. Come on and see. The Panthers fighting for their cause. Come on and see. Come on and see. The Panthers sharpened up their claws. Be sure to wear the red and black and shield. Come on and see. Come on and see. The West Panthers fighting team. Come on and see. Come on and see. The Panthers flying up to the end. Cause they're the team. Cause they're the team. Who simply will not bend. That if you want to know the team to win the grand final. Come on and see.